Hi, I'm Rick Lavoie. I recently met with a group of parents and educators to talk not only about the special challenges that learning disabled children face socially, but also to talk about solutions, the tools that these kids can learn to ensure their social success, so that when our children go out to the playground, they won't be the last one picked, first one picked on. I was speaking in the Midwest to a group of educators, a group of superintendents, and we went out for lunch, about 30 of us, and we were talking about social skills training and whether or not we should teach social skills to our kids in the classroom. And there was this one superintendent who was sort of very loud, overpowering kind of a gentleman, and he was really, his argument was carrying the day, and he was saying no. He was saying no. Parents don't want us involved in this. Parents want us to teach the kids how to read, write, and spell. They don't want us involved in teaching social skills. And, of course, by social skills, I don't mean manners. I mean different ways to socially interact. And he was saying, no, we do, parents don't want us involved in that. They want us to take care of the rewriting and spelling. They'll take care of the social skills. Finally, someone turned to me and said, well, you, you're the consultant. What do you think? And I said, well, for 20 years I've been dealing with parents of special needs kids. For 20 years I've run a school exclusively for learning disabled kids. And during those 20 years there have probably been 15 or 20 times that a parent has sat at my desk and put his or her head down on my desk and just cried, just sobbed about the situation that their learning disabled child is in. In those 20 times, not once was that parent crying because the kid couldn't read or the kid couldn't write or the kid couldn't spell. Every time a parent is reduced to that kind of pain about their learning disabled child, it's about the social isolation and social rejection that these kids suffer every day. We spend so much of our time and energy focusing on the academics that we've forgotten the social part of it. And for my money, the social part may be the most important part of this whole battle. Let me tell you why I believe that. First of all, all environments are social. If your child has difficulty with math, well, he can go play soccer with his friends. You don't have to be able to do math in order to play soccer. If your child can't spell, he can play Nintendo with a group of the neighborhood kids. But if your child has social skill problems, he can't avoid that because every environment is social. Anytime you take more than one person and put them in a room, it's automatically a social situation. So your child can avoid almost all of his or her problems except his social skill problems. And the other reason why I think it's so important is that compensation for social skill deficits is impossible. If your child can't read, I'll read the book to him or I'll put it on tape. If your child can't write, I'll give her a word processor. If she can't spell, I'll put in a spell check. I can compensate for almost every disability your child has except a social skill disability. And I think it's a critically and much ignored part of the development, the study of the development of this child. Learning disabled kids do not learn by accident. They don't learn through osmosis. They don't learn by exposure. They've got to be taught everything. And the evidence that's proof enough for me that kids do not learn good social skills by just watching good social skills, my proof is this. I've spent the better part of my career dealing with parents of kids with special needs. And you know what? Most of the parents have real good social skills. Then why didn't the kids learn them from the parents? If, if it's as simple as taking a child and putting him in a regular education classroom where he can observe good social skills all day, why didn't the child learn the good social skills from the parents? 
This came, came in very clear focus to me last year. I run a school in Cape Cod, and we have a big weekend, graduation weekend at the end of the year, and all of the parents come from all over the country. It's a residential school. They come from all over the country to see their children graduate and to see the prom. And the night of the prom, we have decorate the gym and have a beautiful all-school prom for the students. The parents are there. They witness the promenade. They watch the students come into the gymnasium. And then once the prom starts, the parents return to this beautiful big white circus tent and have a clam bake under the circus tent while the kids are enjoying the prom. And this came through in cl such clear focus for me in June because I walked through that circus tent and I watched 300 of the most sophisticated, urbane, cosmopolitan people you'd ever want to meet in your life, eating lobster with their pinkies up, <laughs> talking about third world debt, gentlemen who didn't know each other 10 minutes before or exchanging business cards to set up golf dates the next day, just these impeccable social skills. And then I left the tent and went up to the gymnasium <laughs> where their students were having a prom. And you saw kids with their fingers up their nose and guys with girls in headlocks. I mean, it was just every social skill error that could possibly be made was being made. Now, those people raised those kids. Those people raised those kids. If those kids hadn't learned appropriate social skills from watching their parents' appropriate social skills for 15 years, what makes us think for a moment that putting them in a regular education classroom is going to do it? Even learning disabled kids that have very good special education programs and are doing very well, the learning disability itself will often cause social skills problems. And let's take a look at some of those problems and the impact that some very typical learning disabilities will have on a child's ability to function socially. Many of our kids are not capable of asking questions. They're not capable of doing this very simple thing. If I were to go to Lisa and say, Lisa, would you please find out from Bob what we're having for dinner? Lisa would go to Bob and say, what? What are we having for dinner? She would take my statement, find out what we're having for dinner, and turn it into a question and ask Bob the question, what are we having for dinner? Try that with your learning disabled kids. Try it with your child with a learning disability. You might be very surprised at the response. Lisa would go to Bob and say, Rick wants to know what we're having for dinner. Do you hear what she did? She asked a question without using a question. She asked, uh, an, she asked a question without using an interrogative sentence. Now, you're sitting there and thinking, well, you know, really, what's the big deal here? You know, the child can't ask questions. What impact does that have socially? Do you realize what impact that would have on your social life? I spend a lot of my time speaking, getting picked up at airports. And someone will pick me up at an airport and drive me to the speaking engagement. Somebody who's associated with the school or the agency that's having me come. I'll bet if you tape recorded those conversations, you would find that 80% of the first 10 minutes of any conversation between two adults that don't know each other consists of questions. How was your flight? How long did it take to get here? How's the weather on Cape Cod? And I say to them, how many people do we have for the presentation? Do they have the projector? I mean, is it going to be mostly teachers or parents? In other words, the way you get a social interaction going is you ask questions until you have enough information about that person to begin to have a conversation. If these kids can't do it, they're totally left out of that kind of social interaction. I love watching two learning disabled kids meet. Hi, I'm from Texas. Hi, I'm from Delaware. That's it. They have nowhere to go after that. 
because they can't ask the questions. What's another reason you use questions? To get what? To get information, to get help. So you've got the harried mainstream teacher who's under all this pressure in the classroom, the mainstream teacher sitting there, the regular education kid comes up and says, excuse me, could you help me with number three? The special education learning disabled kid comes up and says, I can't do this. <laughs> don't they? I can't do this. Because they don't know how to ask a question because they can't phrase it as a question. They make it a statement, and of course, what does the teacher say? Don't you come and tell you. <laughs> they get all blustering and all upset because they're not asking questions. They can't do it. So interrogation, again, seemingly a very small, a very small language problem that causes tremendous social skills problems. Attention deficit disorder getting an awful lot of attention in the field right now. Uh, very important studies, I think, being done in this area. But tremendous misconceptions about attention deficit disorder. Terrible misconceptions out there. And one misconception that bothers me, the one I think bothers me the most, is the one that talks about, uh, I'll talk to special ed directors, special ed experts, special ed professors, special ed teachers, people that should know better, school psychologists, people that should know better, who constantly use the terms distractibility and attention span interchangeably, as if they mean the same thing. The child is very distractible. He has no attention span. The child has no attention span. He's very distractible. Using those two terms interchangeably, when in actuality, the child who's distractible and the child with no attention span are two completely different kids. They couldn't possibly be more different from each other. And yet we continue to use those two terms interchangeably. Well, what is the difference between the child who's distractible and the child with no attention span? Basically, it's this, and this is a lot more than just a little bit of cute wordplay. The child with no attention span pays attention to nothing. The child who's distractible pays attention to everything. There is a critical difference between those two kids. A critical difference between those two kids. The child with no attention span is generally your intellectually limited child. Your child who is functioning at a lower cognitive level. Your developmentally disabled, mentally impaired child. That's the child with no attention span. The child who's distractible is a completely different kid. It's not that he pays attention to nothing. It's that he or she pays attention to everything. It's like looking at the world through a wide-angle lens. Suppose I'm up here speaking, and your name, sir? Arthur. Arthur. Let's say that Arthur is a distractible person. And I'm up here lecturing, and Arthur's, uh, Arthur's interested in my lecture. He's fascinated by my lecture. He's stimulated by my lecture. But he's equally interested in my tie, in my suit, in my shoes, in, in the baseball over here, in these books, in what he had for dinner or what he's going to have for breakfast tomorrow. He's constantly being bombarded with the stimuli, and he, he can't focus any of it out. The school I'd been at previously, we built a new gymnasium. And for reasons I'll never understand, the architect built the fire alarms to look just like light switches. <laughs> Except the fire alarm was a little bit higher than a standard light switch. It was painted red, and it said fire alarm on it. <laughs> well, at a school where 90% of the kids were dyslexic, I'll tell you how much good it did to write fire alarm on it. <laughs> so the first day of school, I'd always take the little kids by the hands, and we'd walk through the gym, and I'd show the kids the gym, and I'd say, kids, this is the gym. You can't go on the floor um, with your shoes on. And over here, now this looks like a light switch, doesn't it? But it's not. It's a fire alarm. This calls the fire department. This turns on the lights in the gym. Fire alarm, light switch. Light switch, fire alarm. You got it? The kids say, we got it. Well, if you know anything about reality testing and learning to table kids, you know there's always got to be one kid that has to see if that really is the case. You know, 
That's that's the kid you say, don't ever put beans in your ears, and the kid says, gee, I never thought of that. You know, let's get it. <laughs> Just the mere suggestion is enough to get him to do it. And a couple of years ago, was a little kid named Carl. First day of school, I took Carl and, Lou, and the other kids through the gymnasium, showed him the light switch, fire alarm, fire alarm, light switch. The next day, second day of school, Carl is walking through the gymnasium, and he says, gee, that guy yesterday told us that that was a fire alarm. But it sure looks like a light switch to me. There's only one way to find out. So he walks over and he throws the switch. Administrative nightmare. Okay? It's pouring, drenching, drenching typhoon rains outside. The fire alarm goes off. All 150 learning disabled, hyperactive kids outside jumping around in puddles. The teacher's standing there with, under their plan book getting soaking wet. The fire department, police, the whole thing ruined the second day of school. I had planned the second day of school like the invasion of Normandy. It was going to be perfect. Ruined the second day of school. Destroyed it. And I was furious. And I took Carl and I brought him down to my office and I sat him across from my desk and I gave it to him both barrels. I was really, really, really going at him full time. Now, he wasn't sure who I was. <laughs> but I had a suit on and I had a big office so he knew he was in trouble. And I was really going at him both barrels. And he's sitting back, back with his eyes open, going through, listening to the whole thing. And I decided to give him administrative lecture number 117. Do we have any school administrators here? School administrators? Well, you know, it... it when you're an administrator, selecting a lecture is like choosing a wine for a meal. You know, it's got to be just, it's got to be just right to go with what you want to do. And I think, I think you'll agree that 117 was a very good choice. Um, 117, lecture 117, talks about if there's a real fire, the fireman can't get to the real fire. You know, people can get hurt. And, I'm in, and he's sitting back, taking the whole thing in. And I'm at the best part of the lecture, the guilt part of the lecture. The part about how the fireman, you can fall off the back of the truck and hit by a car and never see his kids again, you know. The very best, the guilt part of the lecture. The kid is sitting back with his eyes wide open like this, and I went like this to make a point, and the kid says, My father's going to watch just like yours! <laughs> because, again, you've got a picture of the scene. He's, he's got the... He's got this wide-angle lens on. He's taking in the whole thing, and suddenly my watch catches his eye, and so that's what he responds to. Can you imagine the social implications of selective attention? Let me show you how disinhibition works. I'm up here lecturing, and in the middle of my lecture, I mention something about a dog. Arthur begins thinking about dogs, and suddenly he remembers that he left his dog in the house at home. He was the last one to leave. He was supposed to put the dog out. He didn't do it. So the dog is running around the house doing God knows what. Okay? I could be looking right in Arthur's face when he had that thought. I could be looking directly at him, and I would never know that thought crossed his mind. Why? Because Arthur has in his brain what are called inhibitory responses. And these inhibitory responses constantly monitor what we think and tell us what's appropriate to think versus what's appropriate to say. Hundreds of times a day, you have thoughts you never express, right? <laughs> Hundreds of times a day, you think things, but you do not say them because you know it's socially inappropriate, and your inhibitory responses say, think this, but don't say it. Think it, but don't say it. Our kids, learning disabled kids, whatever they think, they say. OTM, OTM, on the mind, out the mouth. Whatever they think, they say. <laughs> Can you imagine... Can you imagine the social implications of disinhibition? How many friends would you still have? How many relatives would still be speaking to you if you said everything you thought about everyone you saw? 
It's not socially acceptable, so we don't do it. No wonder these kids can't establish and maintain relationships. I mean, some of you only see each other, some of you professionals particularly, only see each other at these conferences a couple of times a year. You're not very likely to go up and say, Hi, Gene, how are you? I picked up a few pounds since last year. I mean, you might think, you think these things, but you don't say them. Our kids, whatever they think, they say. The social implications of that are mind-boggling. Have any impulsive kids around here? Yeah. <laughs> You know, the impulsive child, Mel Levine talked about the impulsive child, if I can't do it right, I'll do it fast. Just do it fast. <laughs> this is the lifestyle of the impulsive child. If you've got an impulsive child in your life, this is the lifestyle of the impulsive child. It looks something like this. Ready? Fire! Aim! No, no. You've got to switch those last two around. These are the kids. They're just impulsive. They do the first thing that comes to their mind without any consequential thought. Somebody said to me one time, I'm doing some research on attention deficit disorder kids. Where should I go to find them? I said, go to the hospital emergency rooms <laughs> and, just, and just wait. Go to your local pharmacy, find the mother in the area who buys first aid kits in gross lots. That, that's the parent of the child with an attention deficit disorder because these kids give no, there's no consequential thought. There's no what's called mediation. They just see something, they do it. Sure, I can walk along the edge of that table. Sure, I can try that. I'll give that a shot. And they're constantly falling down, getting hurt, because they don't give any thought to the consequence of their actions because of the impulsivity. So what can we do about it? Well, luckily, there's an awful lot of research and an awful lot of work out there for parents and for teachers in terms of what we can do with these kids and how we can help them to improve their social skills. What I recommend is autopsy. <laughs> now, this is open to some misinterpretation. As we all know, a medical autopsy, a medical autopsy is basically this. The examination and inspection of a dead body to discover the cause of death, determine damage, and prevent reoccurrence. What I recommend to you what I recommend to you is what we call social skill autopsies. And a social skill autopsy works like this. The examination and inspection of a social error to discover the cause of the error, determine the damage, and prevent it from occurring again. Instead of using a child's social skills mistake as a source of punishment or a reason to punish a child, use it as an opportunity to learn. Use it as an opportunity to teach. I'll tell you where this idea came from. My wife and I were having dinner with another couple, and the way we knew the couple was the child attended my school. And uh, uh, the five of us were having dinner, the, couple, the other couple, Janet, myself, and uh, the girl that was that, uh, the daughter of the couple. And the five of us were sitting there having dinner, and in the middle of the dinner, the girl said something very inappropriate. I forget what it was, but it's something that shouldn't have been said at the table. And the father, who was wonderful with her, just wonderful with her, said, Go to your room! Go to your room right now. And so she went up to her room. And I'm sitting there reading, and he knows me pretty well, and he could tell by my, by my body language I wasn't too wild about that. And he said, what did I do wrong? I know I made a mistake. What did I do wrong? And I said, look, I came here to have dinner, not to consult. You know? and, and he said, no, what did I do wrong? And I said, Bruce, listen to me. I said, if you were working with her in the threes times tables, and she had said that three times three was ten, would you have sent her to a room? No, I would have told her what the right answer was. Well, that's what you've got to do. That's what you've got to do with social skills, too. It's not enough to punish the kid when he makes a social skills error or when she makes a social skills error. What you've got to do is use that error as an opportunity to learn, to teach. 
The child made the error. Every child wants to be accepted socially. No one makes social skills mistakes on purpose. So instead of using that as a source of punishment, use it as a source of learning. I'll give you a good example of a social skill autopsy. And at our school, we call them autopsies. And we've trained everyone on that campus how to do autopsies. The secretaries, the bus drivers, the people who work in the dining hall. Everyone that works with the kids knows how to give autopsies. On any given day, a child might receive 15 or 20 autopsies a day. <laughs> the kids don't view them as negatives. They're done in a very positive, upbeat way. But let me give you a good example of an autopsy. I was walking through the dormitory one evening, and I heard two roommates, Tom and Chip. They were having quite an argument. So I opened the door and I said, what happened here? What's going on? And Chip said, Tom borrowed my toothpaste, took it down to the bathroom and lost it. Now I don't have any toothpaste. He's always borrowing my stuff. So I sat down with Tom and I said, Tom, let's do a social autopsy on this. Let's autopsy it. So we sat down and I said, Tom, what do you think your mistake was? What did you do wrong here, Tom? Tell me what happened first. He said, well, he said, I went down to brush my teeth. I didn't have any toothpaste, so I took Chip's toothpaste. Went down to brush my teeth. I was brushing my teeth, and I ran into Jim. And Jim didn't have any toothpaste either. So I gave him the tube, and then I went to somebody else and somebody else, and I don't know where it is now. I said, okay, let's conduct an autopsy here. What was your mistake? What did you do wrong? Now listen to what his answer was, because it's very significant. He said, I know what my mistake was, Mr. Lavoie. I shouldn't have borrowed Chip's toothpaste. And I said, no, 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 that wasn't your mistake. Chip's a good friend of yours. He's your roommate. You help him when he's in a jam, he helps you. That was not your social mistake. See, if I had done what we generally do, which is to punish the child when he makes a social skill error, if I had said, give him $2 for the toothpaste, he would have thought his mistake was borrowing the toothpaste. That was not his mistake. And I said, no, that wasn't your mistake, Tom. And he said, oh, oh, I know what it was. I shouldn't have uh, lent any to Jim. That was, I should have said, no, I shouldn't have lent any to Jim. I said, no, that wasn't your mistake either. Jim and Chip are good friends. Chip wouldn't have minded you lending some toothpaste to Jim. That wasn't your mistake either. And finally the light went on and he said, I've got it. I shouldn't have let go of the tube. I should have held onto the tube and squeezed the toothpaste onto the toothbrush and not let go of the tube. Bingo, now you've got it. You see, the lesson for today is not do not borrow. The lesson is not do not lend. The lesson is when you borrow something from someone, it's your job to hold on to it until it gets returned. Do you understand, Tom? He said, yes. Okay, now you've got it. Now you understand. Social skill autopsies. That's what changes kids' behavior. That's what changes their social skills. Punishing them when they make a mistake is not going to do it. You've got to take that mistake and you've got to use it as an opportunity to learn. Also do autopsies when he does something really well. Don't just save the autopsy for when he makes a mistake. If he does something particularly well, autopsy that too. Why do you think your teacher's so happy with you today? Look what you did. You were so kind. When the teacher came in, uh, she'd been sick a couple of days. You went up and you asked her how she was feeling. That was so appropriate. Look what you did. So you conduct autopsies not only in the mistakes the kids make, you also conduct autopsies when the child does something socially correct. I think the most significant work for parents to understand is the work done by a couple of researchers named Fox and Weaver in California. Let me tell you what they did. For years we've known there are basically four kinds of kids in every school in the country. Children that are rejected, children that are ignored, children that are controversial, and children that are popular. And here's the difference. 
The child who's rejected is the child that everyone goes and looks for. How can I get this kid? Let's spend our week. Let's spend our recess beating up Billy. That's a child that kids go to look for. They openly reject that kid. They make it their business to make that child's life miserable. And unfortunately, you know that we do have kids that are openly rejected by other kids. The next group of kids is a child who's ignored. Now, this child is not openly rejected necessarily, but no one, they just leave him alone. No one wants to play with him. He has no one to hang out with. He doesn't have a lot of friends. He's ignored. The third group of children is the biggest group, and that's a group most of us were in, and that is the controversial group. That is to say, we have a group of friends, but we don't go much beyond that group of friends. And when you think back to high school, you think of a small group of kids that really made up the core of the people you hung out with Maybe because you had something in common. You lived in the same neighborhood, or you, um, you played basketball, or you were cheerleaders, or you were in the debating club. But there was something that defined that group, and you hung out with that group, but you didn't go much beyond that group. And that's where most of us were. And then there's the very rare person, the popular person, the child who has friends in all the controversial groups. The definition, definition of popularity is a person who other people like even if they don't know him. Now, the popular child is the president of the senior class. You know, you go to a high school and you say, do you know Tim Mulligan? And Oh, yeah, he's a great kid, great kid. Do you know him? Well, no, but he's a great kid. <laughs> That's the popular kid. Well, for years in our study of social skill problems, we always studied the kid who was rejected and the kid who was ignored to see what they did wrong. Well, a couple of researchers named Fox and Weaver came up with the idea, and they said, instead of looking at these kids to see what they did wrong, let's take a look at these kids and see what they do right. Let's see what they do right and then teach those skills to the kids who are unpopular. Makes perfect sense to me. They found a list of positive traits that all kids like about other kids. If you can train your child, your child with a learning problem, a social skills problem, to do these uh, seven things up here on a consistent basis, he or she will automatically be more popular because these are the things that the kids liked about other kids. Things like smiling and laughing. Kids don't like kids, other kids that are always walking around sad and always walking around bummed out. They don't like that about other kids. Teach your kid to smile. Teach him to laugh. The, your problems are your own, John. You don't want to be wearing your problems on your sleeve all the time. Kids that greet others, if you can just get them to, to just teach them to say hello to other people in the corridor, just to say, hi, how are you, as they're walking through the corridor instead of walking with their eyes downcast all the time. All adolescents at some point in their life feel left out. They feel like they don't belong. So they always appreciate a kid who's willing to extend invitations. You know, come on, we're going to go for pizza, Tony. Why don't you come with us? So teach your kid, if you're going out with a group of kids, make sure you include everybody. Other students will appreciate that. They like kids who can converse, kids who can share, kids who can give compliments, and kids with good appearance. This is from the horse's mouth. This is what kids have told us they like about other kids. So you teach these skills. You teach these skills to your child in order to improve his or her social standing. We've also got a list here of what I call no sweats. These are things to please teachers. Teacher-pleasing behaviors. And the reason I call them no sweats is they don't cost anything. Time, energy, or effort, they're basically pretty easy things to do that you can teach your child, or if you're in special ed, you can teach your student how to do these things in order to be more successful in the mainstream environment. Let's take a look at some of the no sweats. First of all, be on time. Be punctual. Most teachers appreciate that. 
Establish eye contact with the teacher. Look at the teacher when he or she is talking to you. Participate in class, even if it's just to ask a question. You know, I can't say, I can't participate. I don't know enough about what's going on. Just to ask, could you repeat that, please? What's the homework tonight? Even a question is, uh, uh, can be suitable. Use the teacher's name. Everyone likes you having their name used. Ms. Smith, could you help me with this? Ms. Pacheco, could you answer this question for me? Mr. Burns, would you please tell me? Some more no sweats. Submit work on time. Use the required formats. If the teacher's a nut about using pen instead of pencil, make sure you use pen. Avoid crossing things out. Request explanations. Instead of saying, I can't do this, teach the child how to ask for help. And lastly, but it's a very, very simple and a very effective technique, train your child, teach your child to thank every teacher after every class. I mean, think about it. If I dropped a piece of paper and you picked it up and gave it to me, I'd say thanks for picking up a piece of paper. This person just gave an hour of his or her life to your child. Don't you think it's worth a thanks? And I don't care the most hard-hearted teacher in the world has got to be softened by a kid walking by the desk and saying, thank you, thanks, thanks, Ms. Jones, thank you, before they leave class. I mean, it's a simple courtesy, but it's something that's not often done in schools today, so it stands out with the teacher, and it makes your child stand out in the teacher's mind. So those are some techniques that you can use very effectively to increase the social, the social status that your child currently enjoys. The hidden curriculum of school is probably the most important curriculum that your learning disabled child can learn and the most important part of this curriculum that will ensure the success of your child in school. The standard curriculum of a school is math, science, social studies, history. The hidden curriculum of the school is basically the unwritten, unspoken rules of school. The problem that our kids have is not only do they violate the hidden curriculum rules, but they also are not socially aware enough to realize when they've done that. The hidden curriculum of a school is basically the culture that makes that school different from every other school. That's what hidden curriculum is, is the study of the culture of schools. Where I went to junior high school, B.F. Brown Junior High School, Fitchburg, Massachusetts, you did not enter the side door before 8.30 in the morning. The reason you didn't enter the side door before 8.30 in the morning at that junior high school was that the kids who hung out at that side door would eat you for breakfast if you dared go through there by yourself. That's where all the tough kids hung out, and no one ever used that side door before 8.30 when the teachers were on duty. I knew it, and every kid in that school knew it. It was part of the hidden curriculum of that school. It wasn't in the student handbook. It wasn't ever announced in an assembly. The principal never got in the loudspeaker and said, your attention, please, students, do not use the side door before 8.30 in the morning. The kids who hang out there will beat you to death if you do. And yet everyone knew it. It was part of the school's hidden curriculum. Now, for years... Parents have been saying, please teach the kids the hidden curriculum. For years, the kids have been saying, please teach us the hidden curriculum. But now, special education teachers, even our mainstream, our mainstream colleagues, are asking us to teach the hidden curriculum. And let me show you a piece of research that was done. A questionnaire was sent out to 1,500 mainstream teachers, teachers who deal with learning disabled special needs kids in mainstream classes. And the questionnaire said, please list three skills, three skills that you think are important 
for the ki- in order for a child, a special needs child, to make it in the mainstream. And, of course, hundreds and hundreds of skills were identified. These were the top seven responses. Number one, listening skills. Number two, ability to follow direction. Number three, ability to stay on task. Number four, knowing how to ask for help. Number five, the ability to get started on a task. Number six, the ability to finish on time. Number seven was word attack or reading skills. What's the significance of this research? That the first six, the first six items were hidden curriculum items. The first six items selected by the teachers were mainstream teachers were actually hidden curriculum issues. What our mainstream colleagues are saying to us is, we can deal with kids who can't read, we can deal with kids who can't write, but stop sending us kids who can't follow directions, who can't listen, who can't stay on task. So those of us in special ed are working so hard to teach these academic skills to the kids, like reading, writing, and spelling, and our colleagues are saying, that's not what's causing the problem. What's causing the problem are these skills. Teach them the hidden curriculum of school. Does the child understand the physical plant? What you'll find many times is he does not. He's the only kid in the school who doesn't realize you can get from the gymnasium to the uh, uh, soccer field by cutting through the library. He has to walk all the way around the school. He doesn't understand the physical plant. There was a child I was consulting on. Listen to this. child was in danger of being thrown out of school. Teachers, everybody was really furious at him because he was constantly late for class. And not, all, not only was he always late for class, but he always came into class all out of breath and all out of puff, which meant that he was waiting until the very last minute to go into class, and the teachers were furious with him. Until one day they followed him around the school. You know what this poor kid was doing? He was in a four-story high school. His first class, his homeroom class, was on the first floor. His next period class was on the fourth floor. And his second period class was on the third floor. Here's what he would do. He would go from homeroom in the first floor up to the fourth floor to his first period class. When it came time for his second class, he would go back down to the first floor and then up to the third floor. Because he didn't have it, he didn't understand the only way he knew how to get around the school was to start at his homeroom. And so he would go back to his homeroom after every class and start from his homeroom to get to his next class. And this poor kid not only couldn't understand why he was late all the time, he couldn't understand how everybody else could be on time. Because he'd leave one class and he'd run down the three flights of stairs and then run back up again, and he couldn't understand why everyone else could make it on time. This kid was being branded unmotivated. He didn't care about school. He wasn't interested in school. It was a physical plant problem. He didn't know how to get around the school. Does your kid understand how to use the cafeteria? I had a student tell me he was a senior in high school. He said he never had a hot lunch in four years of high school because he was absent the first day, freshman year, when they taught the kids how to, how to access the hot lunch line, and he was too embarrassed to ask anybody after that. So he went four years without having lunch. Four years without having lunch because he didn't know how to access the lunch line. It was a physical plant problem. Does your kid understand the physical plant? The social environment. Does the child understand what the clicks are, what's in and out? Does he understand the administration? Does he understand who works for who? Does he understand who to go to with what kind of problem? Does he understand that the vice principal happens to be very sensitive to special needs kids, but maybe the principal isn't, and maybe he should go to the vice principal with his problems and not to the principal? Does he understand how the administrative structure of the school works? Do they understand the, um, the extracurricular activities in the school? There's a big trend in special education that troubles me terribly where they're taking kids that are in afternoon kind of activities 
learning disabled kids that are in the camping club or the scouting club or the stamp club, and they're pulling them out of those activities and doing their remedial work after school. I think that's such a big mistake. That's the lifeline for some of these kids. That's what makes them go to school. You take this great big high school with 2,500 kids in it, the kid is constantly lost, he's constantly confused, but then he joins the camping club. And suddenly that great big school with, with a couple thousand kids in it becomes a group of ten kids that like to camp, just like he does. Don't you dare. Don't you dare take that away from these kids. These kids need to take that large school and make it smaller. But many times they don't understand extracurricular activities. I had a student say to me one time, uh, uh, you know, Miss L I said, you didn't sign up for soccer. I thought you were a great soccer player. You didn't sign up for soccer. Yeah, well, I'm from the south, and I don't want to be playing soccer up here all winter. I said, well, you don't play soccer all winter. Soccer is just in the fall. There's another sport in the winter. Oh, I didn't know that. He didn't understand. He thought if you signed up for soccer in the fall, you had to play soccer all ten months of school. He didn't understand how the extracurricular works. Explain that to the kids so that they understand it. Does he understand the schedule? Does he understand the schedule? I was consulting with a child who was in trouble in school because he was truant. He was leaving, he was skipping school about on average of about one day a week. So the school people got together, and in their infinite wisdom, they decided that as a punishment for that, as a consequence of that, they would suspend him. <laughs> We've got, we got a child who doesn't want to go to school, and a consequence for that is we're not going to let you go to school. And so they sat the child down, and they said, if this happens again, you're, you're true in an average of one day a month, one day a week. If this continues to happen, if you don't improve this trend, and this continues to happen, you're going to be suspended. So he promised, he committed to the fact that he would do everything he could to improve his attendance. Well, over the next month, an average of one day a week, he was absent. So they called everyone together, and they said, let's bring him and the parents in and tell them that he is suspended from school for 10 days. They were calling the parents and the child as they were walking down the corridor to come in. Somebody at the meeting, I wish I could say it was me, but it wasn't. One of the teachers said, wait a second, close the door, don't let him in yet. Close the door, and she said, everybody look at your plan books. You notice a pattern here? And somebody said, no, what? Look at the days he's absent. He's only absent on Wednesdays. He's absent every Wednesday. And so, I was, again, I was consulting with the school. I didn't know the school real well. And I said, well, what goes on around here on Wednesdays? And they said, well, Wednesday is Modified Block Schedule Day. And if you know what Modified Block Schedule Day is, that's the day where you take the entire schedule, stand it on its head, move it all around in order to accommodate for assemblies and those kinds of other special things that go on. Modified Block Schedule Day. This poor kid would go to school every Wednesday. He was a senior and was in a freshman homeroom. He'd go to school every Wednesday. His dad would drop him off. He'd go up, he'd sit in his homeroom class, and he'd say, I'm going to stay today. I am not going to leave today. Then the principal would come over the loudspeaker. Uh, reminder, today is modified block schedule day. All alpha periods will meet second period unless you're in the third floor, in which case you'll meet third period. All third period classes will meet in the gymnasium unless, of course, you're a girl, at which point you'll meet second period class fourth period. And this poor kid was so confused... And at the same time, so embarrassed because he was too embarrassed to go ask his freshman classmates what that he'd go out the door. It was a hidden curriculum problem. This kid did, could not figure out the schedule of the class. Therefore, the schedule of his classes, therefore, rather than embarrass himself, he would skip out the door. The hidden curriculum is particularly important when it comes to adolescence. Adolescence. 
one of the wisest things ever said about adolescence. Dr. Mel Levine, University of North Carolina, wrote something in a book 15 years ago, and I read it, and I remember closing it and thinking, you just gave me a gift. It was such a wonderful gift, and let me give that gift to you, the same gift that was given to me 15 years ago, that will make adolescence suddenly make so much sense to you. How many of you work with adolescents? Raise your hands. Okay, how many of you are raising adolescents? Yeah, you're the ones that are saying, we can go for a few more hours, Rick. I mean, there's really no need to go home. Let me tell you the key to raising adolescents. The key to raising adolescents is basically this. You will be much more effective as a parent raising an adolescent if and when you buy into the simple understanding that you cannot win. <laughs> Once you realize you can't win, the rest of it's pretty easy. Example, you're with your daughter. You're walking through the mall with your 14-year-old daughter, and you run into a group of your daughter's friends. Okay? There are two mistakes you can make at this juncture, Mom. Two mistakes that Mom can make at this juncture. One is to ignore her friends. To not talk to her friends, big mistake. The other mistake is to talk to her friends. Big mistake. <laughs> and once you realize no matter what you do, you're going to be wrong, it's a lot easier to deal with. But Dr. Levine demystified uh, uh, adolescence for me in a book that he wrote some time ago. And basically what he said is this. Adolescence. The entire essence of adolescence, the definition of adolescence, the entire purpose for being an adolescent is simply this. Adolescence is a 365-day, 52-week, 7-day-a-week battle to not be embarrassed. That's it. That's adolescence. And once you see adolescence from that perspective, the adolescent prayer is, Dear God, please don't let me be humiliated today. Once you understand adolescence from that perspective, it suddenly makes so many things they do you never understood so easy to understand. I remember being a, a teacher bringing a child down to my office by the scruff of the neck. Rick, I'd like you to beat this kid to death. <laughs> I said, well, that's in my job description, but why am I doing it? You know, why am I doing this? Rick, for no reason today in class, he reached and pushed another kid off, right off his seat. Kid was sitting in his seat, pushed him right onto the floor for no reason. Just yesterday, I said to the kids, if anybody pushes anyone in this class, I'm going to send you down to the director's office. This kid had never done it before. Suddenly, for no reason, he pushes the kid off his desk. I said, okay, what happened just before this? Nothing. I said, come on, something must have happened. No, nothing. I said, humor me. I'm the director. You know what? Well, what happened? She said, well, we did a little bit of reading, and that was fine. Then we did some poetry, and he was good then. And we did a little bit of uh, grammar work, and he was fine there. And then I said, everybody take out the compositions you wrote last night. I want you to read them out loud in front of the class. And suddenly, he pushed the next kid off the seat. Take a look at it from the point of view of the adolescent. I've got a choice here. She wants me to read this composition in front of the class. Now, I can either read this composition and be embarrassed in front of my friends, because my composition really stinks. I can either read this composition and be embarrassed in front of my friends, or I can push this guy off the seat and get sent out of class. Duh. You know. That's the, that's the easiest decision I'll make all day. He pushes the kid off the seat, and he gets, and he's saved from the embarrassment. Embarrassment is the thing that these kids fear the most, and they're constantly being embarrassed by their lack of knowledge about the hidden curriculum. The, the learning disabled adolescents that have such a difficult time understanding the hidden curriculum are constantly in positions where they're embarrassed. And that's the worst thing you can do to one of our kids. The worst thing you can do to an adolescent is to embarrass them, and our kids spend day after day, week after week, being constantly embarrassed by their inability to understand the hidden curriculum, so teach it to them. wondering if you know of a child who has attention deficit disorder 
and they're uninhibited and therefore they're having some social rejection and you talk to the child and try to work out different strategies of what is socially acceptable, what do you do if that child is still continuing to have social problems? There's two things you have to do. As a parent of a special needs child, your job is twice as difficult as mine. A child with a profile like the one you described is generally going to have the most difficulty in new situations, any situation that they're not familiar with. As a parent of a special needs child, you've got two jobs to do. You've got to prepare the child for the situation and the situation for the child in any social environment. So suppose um, my, I've got a learning disabled child and he's going to go to a Boy Scout meeting here, his first meeting on Thursday. What I've got to do is bring the child here on Wednesday evening before the meeting and say, okay, John, let's take a look around here. Let's take a look here. This is where you're going to have the meeting. Now, there are a lot of books over there, and I know you love to read books, but keep those on the shelf because you can't be pulling those down. And over here, there's a flag, and I know you love to carry the flag around, but leave that in the stand there because it's a big brass stand. You could get hurt. The bathrooms are down here. Over here, there's a machine. You're going to leave that machine alone. It looks like the VCR at home, but you want to leave that at home. At home. Preparing the child for the situation. Where parents, the step the parents leave out many times is preparing the situation for the child. You've got to call the Boy Scout leader and say, listen, there's a kid coming over there. My son's coming over. He's a great kid. He ties knots. He loves arts and crafts. He's terrific outside. He loves camping. But I'll tell you, he has difficulty reading. You've got to prepare the situation for the child as well. Um, I remember a parent calling me one time furious because her child, my son's been thrown off the Little League team. He can't play Little League because he's learning disabled. I said, he can't play Little League because he's learning disabled. What's that all about? Who's the coach? He told me the name of the coach. He happened to be a guy I knew real well that had a learning disabled kid himself. Now, there's no way in the world this coach threw the kid off the team for, not, for being learning disabled. It doesn't make any sense. So I said, what happened? Here's what happened. The child went to practice. First practice, he was doing real well, a real hustler. So much so, the coach noticed him. Kid's very severely learning disabled, but a great ball player. And the coach noticed him. So when it came time at the end of the practice to do a little chalk talk, you know, talking about the plays and things, the coach said, okay, now there are new rules about stealing second base. New rules the Little League just put into effect, and I've got the new rules right here. I'd like to have somebody come up and read them. Chuck, why don't you come up and read them? Chuck said, no. Coach said, now wait a second. <laughs> Didn't ask you. I'm telling you, please come up and read these. Kid said, no. Said, Chuck, come up and read these. No, I won't. Coach said, fine. You won't read them. You also won't play, play for the next week either. You're going to warm the beds for the next week. That coach, if that coach had been told the kid had a learning disability, he never would have done that. The parent did not prepare the situation for the child by calling, by letting the child, the, the coach know that this kid was going to have difficulty reading. So you call the coach and you say he's a great ball player, has a great stick, goes great to his left and great to his right, but don't, please don't ask him to read. Uh, we have a child that is both have a learning disability and has a physical disability. Mm -hmm. uh, we are told by the teachers that he's extremely popular at home. At, uh, at school, I'm sorry. Yet, he doesn't have any close friends that we know of outside of the school. As an example, he had a birthday not long ago, and he said, I'd rather have the family than invite any friends. Mm -hmm. The two things don't jive. Yeah. They, they do jive in a sense that I have a bias that kids are generally and basically kind. And if they are more likely to be kind to a child with a physical disability than they are to be, to be kind to a child with a learning disability. And so what your child is benefiting from, which is very much to his benefit, is benefiting from the uh, children in the school community sort of, 
circling the wagons around them, being helpful to them. But that is not a friendship. One of the things that happens with learning disabled kids is they have a difficult time determining who their friends are because they don't know what a friend means. They have a lot of acquaintances but not many friends. And what you have to do is to teach them what a friend means. A friend is a person who makes sacrifices for you, who let you grow without feeling jealous, that's happy for you when you're happy and sad for you when you're sad. And I would dare say that your child probably doesn't have an awful lot of friends. He's got a lot of acquaintances. What I would do is... Um, I'm a big believer in what I call the American foreign policy approach to friendship, which is basically if I give you something, will you be my friend? And that's kind of how we... And what I would do is invite, invite, invite kids over to the house and, and make it something special. Get a video you know they want to use, they want to see. Before, a child, before the kids are going to like your son, they first have to get to know your son. And sometimes you as a parent have to set up artificial situations to bring the kids in so they'll get a chance to know the child and then the friendships will begin. Some parents will say, well, gee, the problem I've got, Rick, is he's been in this town for so many years and there's all, he's been in trouble all the time and nobody wants to be his friend. He, does, he doesn't want to join Boy Scouts because nobody wants him around. You know what my solution to that is? Take him to the next town. The, other kid, the kids in your town have watched this kid grown up They've gotten in trouble because he gets in trouble in school, and they've got this reputation thing going where they don't like a child because of things that happened years before. In the next town, they only know him as he is today, as a 14-year-old who's pretty well socialized. Let him join Boy Scouts in the next town. It's worth the drive because it gives them a chance to wipe the slate clean and work with other kids. Yes. Uh, I'm a parent and also a parent advocate, and I hear from a lot of parents whose children have ADD and are in regular classrooms that the teachers see their ADD behavior as noncompliant behavior. Sometimes I feel it's the parent's job to educate the teachers about that. And, and, and candidly, I like parents will come up to me with great venom and anger in their voice, and they'll say, I know more about attention deficit disorder than my child's teacher does. The, re the reality is, in some cases, that's true, and that's okay. Uh, it's your child. Uh, you would, if your child had diabetes, you'd expect to have to educate the teachers to that. I think that what you, you have an education job ahead of you. You've got to talk to the teachers, tell them this is noncompliant behavior, this is behavior that's beyond its control. Write a letter to the teachers and, and make that differentiation so that they understand. It really becomes a parent's job, I think, to step in and advocate in a very positive way until the child is old, old enough to advocate for himself. How do you deal in schools with the hidden agenda, the hidden curriculum changes, where teachers will say, I want the kids to be here on time, and then one day they do, one day they don't? There's so much disagreement in the field in terms of how to approach the learning disabled child, but the one thing that almost everybody agrees on is that our kids need consistency. They need consistency and they need structure. What I would do is to try to explain to the teacher that your child needs consistency like other kids need oxygen. It needs to be there. It's not a matter of what they want. It really is what they need. And the teacher will find that the more consistent the teacher is with the expectations for the child, the more responsive the child will be. The problem with kids, and it, this works very, with social skills as well, is the idea of performance inconsistency. There was some research done in New York, uh, Columbia University, a gentleman named Jonathan Cohen did some research and studied depressed learning disabled adolescents. I'm not talking sad, I'm talking depressed. And asked them, what, what brought you to this point? What brought you to this depression? What the kids said invariably is, the reason we feel this way is not because we're not as good at school as brothers and sisters, not because of the pressure we get from parents or teachers. The reason we feel this way is some days we can do it and other days we can't. The problem appears to come and go. Somebody do 
drew a great analogy for me one time that said that the learning disabled child's brain, it's as if he has three clocks in his brain, and they're all telling different times and moving at different speeds. So they're constantly out of sync. But the law of averages will tell you every once in a while, bingo, 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 the three clocks are telling the same time, and you get this incredible forward movement for a week or two weeks or a month or however long. There's this improvement, this growth, and then boom, they get out of sync again, and things get all confused again. And we've got to recognize that performance inconsistency is part of the problem and stop punishing kids for it. Because when a child has a good day, instead of celebrating it and saying, isn't this wonderful you're having a good day, we beat the kid over the head with it. We say, you know, how come you can do it today? You couldn't do it yesterday. You know, how come you can do it today? Or you decided to work today. You know, when I consult with kids and they tell me every once in a while they have a good day, I say, if you, you get up in the morning, you know you're going to have a good day, don't go to school. Don't go to school because I'll beat with that day for the rest of the year. You know, we, we use that as the benchmark. And so one of the, the problems, the reason our kids need such a consistent environment is because their performance is so inconsistent that they need to have some degree of consistency. And the teachers will find their life goes a lot better if they do that. Okay, so what's the answer to all this? Talk about social skills. We talk about wanting to develop kids the way we'd like them to develop. What's the answer to it? The answer to most of the problems in special education and American education today, in my mind, are in my hand in this ball. This ball, I think, if we were to all follow the lessons that this ball has to teach, I think that we'd be better special education teachers, better regular education teachers, and ultimately better parents and would have a better, better and a more productive generation of kids. Let me tell you why I think that. This is a baseball, a regulation Major League Baseball, but that's not what makes it special. This baseball is signed and autographed by every member of the 1967 Boston Red Sox. Now, if you know anything about Boston or anything about Fenway Park or anything about the Red Sox or anything about sports or anything about dreams, you know the 67 Red Sox predicted to finish in last place in the American League in 1967. They were in last place on the 4th of July. They ended up having an incredible July, August, and September, ended up winning the pennant and almost won the World Series in a heart-stopping seven-game World Series against the St. Louis Cardinals. This was 1967. These guys are still the biggest heroes in Boston. These guys can't buy a meal or a drink in Boston. 25, 30 years later, they walk into a restaurant. They have people, please, let me buy you a drink, Rico. Let me buy you a, a, a meal, Carl. I mean, these are the biggest heroes in Boston, and this ball was signed and autographed by every member of that team. But that's not why it's important. And that's not why I think it's the answer to American education. Let me tell you how I came to own this ball. This ball originally belonged to my wife's uncle. My wife's uncle was Captain Michael Francis O'Brien of the Boston Police Department. Great, big, burly, red-faced Irish cop. Wonderful, wonderful guy. He loved the Red Sox. Never married, never had any children of his own. His whole life was the Red Sox. He was a precinct captain for Kenmore Square, where Fenway Park is. He was a season ticket holder for 31 years. Didn't miss a home game for a 15-year stretch. Didn't miss one home game. He loved the Red Sox, and they loved him. And in 1967, when they won the World Series, they autographed this ball and gave it to Michael. But that's what makes it special. Let me, let, me, let me tell you how I came to own this ball. Michael died in 1982. And my wife and the kids and I went up to his funeral in Boston, big captain's funeral in Boston. And at the end of the funeral, we, we went to my wife's grandmother's house, where Michael lived. And we're sitting around having coffee, and Nana, my wife's grandmother, disappeared into Michael's bedroom and came out, and she had a bag, and she said, I've got some things I'd like you to have to remember Michael. 
And she reached in the bag and she took out a framed photograph of Michael, his first day in the police force in his uniform as a young man, gave that to my wife. It still hangs in our, in our living room. Reached into the bag, took out two gold replicas of captain's badges and gave those to my sons. And then she reached in the bag and she took this out. And she said, Rick, I want you to have this. As soon as I saw it, I knew exactly what it was. I said, no, 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 Nana, you don't want to give me that. You don't want to give me that ball. I used to walk into his room like a little kid and just look at it. I couldn't imagine owning it. I said, no, you don't want to give me that ball. That's got great sentimental value, great collectible value. You know, I'm only in the family by marriage. You know, you know wait till one of the kids gets old enough to appreciate it. If we ever get divorced, the custody battle over this thing will go on for years. Please don't give me that baseball. And she says, no, Rick, I want you to have it. She said, I know you love the Red Sox. You and Michael used to talk about the Red Sox all the time. Michael would want you to have it. Please take it. I want you to have it. So I accepted it with great humility, put it back in the bag. We finished having our coffee and saying our goodbyes. We got in the car and started driving back home to Connecticut, where we lived at the time. Driving down from Boston, driving down the Merritt Parkway in Connecticut, my son Danny, four years old, sitting in the back seat, suddenly pipes up and he says, Dad, I noticed Nana gave you a baseball. When we get home, let's go out in the driveway and play catch with it. I hit the brakes, pull over the side of the road. No, Danny, no, no, no. We can never, ever play catch with that baseball. We can never use that ball to play catch. Danny said, why not, Dad? I said, because there's writing on it. I figured, you know, he's four years old. He can't understand a possible dream team autographs. He can't understand that because there's writing on it. He said, okay, that's fine. And we continued the journey home. Pulled into the driveway. I started unloading the car. Dan disappears into his bedroom for about 10 minutes. Comes out 10 minutes later with his hands behind his back. Dad, have I got a surprise for you. I said, what is it, Dan? He said, you know that ball you said we couldn't use because there's writing on it? I said, yeah, we can use it now. I said, Danny, what did you do? And he held the ball out very proudly in front of him, and he held it out. He said, Dad, I took it up in my bedroom, and I licked all the writing off for you. <clears throat> well... There were several options that I considered. It was certainly too late for an abortion. The kid was four years old. And the other things I thought about violated different state and federal laws. But then suddenly it came to me, and I looked at him, this beautiful kid holding this ball up with a big smile on his face, and it suddenly came to me, look at this through his eyes. Look at this through his eyes. Through my eyes, he had done something terrible, something inexcusable. But through his eyes, through the eyes of a child, he had done something quite sweet. His dad who he knows and loves and trusts, said we can't use a ball because that's writing on it. The, the solution to that is easy. Take the writing off. So I, know, I went over to him, and instead of slugging him, I hugged him. A little tighter than I had to, maybe, but, <laughs> but I hugged him. And, you know, this ball has absolutely no collectible value anymore. It means nothing to anyone in the world except me. It's totally devoid of any value now, but it sits on my desk every day at work, and it, it keeps me honest. Because every time a learning disabled kid comes, under, comes into me with some cockamamie problem, some problem that makes no sense to me, some big issue that he doesn't understand, I look at the ball and it reminds me that my job as an educator and as a parent is to look at the world the way kids look at the world. We've got a generation of teachers and parents who are trying to get the kids to look at the world the way we do. The solution to most of our problems in education is we've got to start looking at the world the way they do. We've got to do what Father Flanagan taught us to do. Remember Boys Town? No man stands as tall as when he bends to help a child. That's what we have to do is start looking at the world through the eyes of kids. Then and only then will we be able to solve the tremendous problems we have in regular education and special education. Okay?
Thank you very much. Thank you.